and a lot of people want to jump very quickly to make a decision and take action to solve a problem. And then in doing that, sometimes they create another problem. So a lot of times when I've been dealing with communication challenges, a big part of the resolution is really just about unpacking what's going on and talking through the problem that you have and doing a proper analysis. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. Libby, it's wonderful to have you join us here on the podcast today. I wonder if we could start by asking you to share with the audience something about you that most people wouldn't know. Hi, Suzanne. It is a great pleasure to be here. Now, this question is interesting because I would hope there's lots of things that people don't know about me. <laughs> um, so, But one thing I find amusing myself is that I still get emails from Google Scholar reminding me that my an article I wrote, co-authored actually in 2007, that I wrote in a hurry with a partner uh, and that we published soon thereafter in an area that I am really not very interested in is still my most cited article. And it, you know, I've been out of academia for a long time, been in industry a long time, and uh, it's funny to me that I have this article and uh, just for fun, I'll give you the, the heading. It is the efficiency of constructed weak sampling for content analysis of online news. And to my amazement, it's still it's cited by Chinese scholars and Russian scholars and American scholars and and it's just ticking away on Google Scholar. It's actually published under my um you know uh, my my married name and I don't go by that name anymore. But um Anyway, I, I think it's funny and it's been uh, uh, interesting to be reminded all the time of this sort of things that that are metrics that tell you how you're, you're successful in some things that you don't actually uh, yourself actually acknowledge as something as, as a success because it wasn't something that you were that interested in in the first place. But yes. it's been important. It's a method. And it's funny what resonates with That's true. People, but it obviously strikes a chord and it provides them with the evidence base for something that they need. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's a sort of theme of our conversation today will be a bit sometimes – it's that we can't know what the audience needs or wants. We have to test. We have to collect evidence. We have to find out. And I think that I'm really looking forward to our conversation because you've worked with many organizations, helping them to improve how they communicate in complexity and ambiguity. However, I'm curious, Libby, are all the situations you've dealt with as complex as people like to say they are, or is there something else going on? So good question, Suzanne. Uh, I would say mostly no. Mostly no, things aren't as complex as people think they are. And there's lots of things going on. People panic. They're worried about risks and they're trying to solve lots of problems concurrently instead of unpacking all of the issues and tackling them in, a, in an analytical way. I don't know if you've read 
this the book by Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. Yeah. Yes, I love, I love that, that book. book too. <laughs> and and that whole prospect theory, which talks about you know loss aversion, but but really what that tells us is that uh, under pressure we tend to revert to making intuitive decisions sort of based on gut feel, based on experience, shortcuts. We, you know, we need shortcuts to get through everyday life. So we, under pressure, we revert to taking these shortcuts. And so our shortcuts can, you know, get in the way of good analysis. And a lot of people want to jump very quickly to make a decision and take action to solve a problem. And then in doing that, sometimes they create another problem. So, a lot of times when I've been dealing with communication challenges, a big part of the resolution is really just about unpacking what's going on and talking through the problem that you have and doing a proper analysis, relying on your, you know, your analytical brain instead of just your gut. So, that's sort of the issue. And I think what else is going on is, is no fear of getting in trouble you know, people are risk-averse. We're getting very risk-averse. Uh, we're afraid of making mistakes and how public those mistakes might be, particularly in a communication context. Um, and I think in on the internal communication side, what I have noticed a lot in recent times, and you, you Suzanne, would, would be interested in your thoughts on this, it's just is this sort of um, – there's this proliferation of vocabularies, of taxonomies. And so complexity is created when you've got, you know, one system where you use financial language, one system where you use HR language, one system where you use, you know, the operations language. And all of these languages are built into different processes and systems that poor employees have to kind of navigate. So you might have a term like leave, for example, something bland that is described in three or four different ways within different organizational kind of process systems and and classifications if you if you know what i mean that's kind of yeah and that's just that is just crazy unnecessary i remember when we brought health and ambulance services oh. together and culturally they were very different in the types of language that they used because ambulance services were more aligned with the other emergency services which tended to have more military yeah, style right. yep. leanings with language and you know everything was like 1500 hours not 3 p.m. and it was a very different environment so trying to bring those two that's right together uh, even at an executive table the language was very different exactly you can't communicate if you are not all speaking the same language and if you're insisting on on embedding all of these different languages in different systems you're just creating this nightmarish sort of, of situation that, and I guess that's that's super common now. And I would yes. say to everybody, you know, work out your taxonomy and stick to it. Don't allow IT yes. to develop a different language to the finance, to the payroll, to the HR. You can't all have all of that. And unfortunately, you know, we we're also buying out of the box kind of software and, and systems. And, and that's where I think the problem gets really messy is because we we bought these thing these systems, these things are supposed to help us, but they bring with them a solution but also a problem. 
And, yes. you know, we were all doing more with less. Nobody's got the time. Nobody possibly even knows that that's the problem. You know, they haven't actually recognized that right now you're expecting people to understand how to navigate something that should be simple, but they're using, you know, three or four different languages. So simple English, simple English. is a good rule of thumb. Yes. Then. And uh, simple, uh, one simple language, please. And, you know, minimi- yes. and obvious things like n- minimize the initialisms, the acronyms, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, that's complex. So Libby, why is the quality of how organizations communicate so important from your perspective? Good communication leads to action. Good communication leads to whole and satisfying relationships. Good communication means that you've got a chance of wasting less effort. I don't know, maybe I'm lazy, but I feel like the best solution is the one that uh, works, you know, the first time. So you take some pains to make sure that you're getting your message out clearly and unambiguously or as unambiguously as you can. And you do it enough, but not too much whatever that mix is. <laughs> Communication, there's an incredible capacity for people to misunderstand or be confused if your communication isn't clear, if people are getting you know, different messages within the same missive. You know, the same email tells you three different things, three different yes. ways. It's just an unnecessary distraction. It's a waste of time and it's so avoidable. And Libby, I'm just reflecting back on something that you said earlier, which was around when you're writing emails, particularly if you're in a change situation and you might put all of this information and you think you're doing the right thing, putting a load of information into this email. And the reality is people read, if you're lucky, the first three lines. They're looking for the highlight points So you think you've done the right thing, just laying out all of this information, but no one reads it. (laughs) And then you end up having to go back and fix up all the misinterpretations and the assumptions that people have made. So I like that point that you made about really putting in the effort into the analysis, thinking about what is really important for these people to understand right now, write it in very simple English and write it so it can be scanned, so people really see the most important information. So depending on your audience, I mean, how you communicate with general staff is probably a bit different to how you communicate with executives that you need to take critical actions. But I know when I was communicating with execs who needed to do things, select use of bolding and underlining and sparse text and white space were really critical when it came to emails because if there was a big long trail of things on their phone, I know in the early days I'd get messages back going, what do you actually want me to do? What is the action? What is my action out of this? Yeah. I'm a bit lost. What is it I really need to understand? (laughs) So what you were saying about doing the analysis and getting it down to that succinct most salient point. Yes, exactly. And, you know, time is time is an important factor in, in all that, Suzanne. People need need to be provided with the right information at the right time. So it's yes. not it's who, what, when, where, why and how and all of those things yeah. are important. So um there is always a temptation, particularly for someone who's got expertise or, you know, a burning desire to get all to share all of this knowledge or, you know, to get things happening yes. to just put it all out there. Then you've got the situation where people 
some will misread it. They'll start, or there'll be people who will jump to the end and start actioning what didn't need to happen for another X weeks. Yes. So yes, it's it's not rocket science. Once again, as I said, referring back to that kind of tendency to jump in rather than sort of sit back and go, okay, we need to take action, but we need to take it in a way that is going to be um, suitable for the audience and is yes, uh, and that's the key word, isn't it? Audience. I remember back when I was a middle manager and you would be so immersed in a project or a piece of work that you were doing and you had to write a briefing note to go up the line to get approval. And so you would feel that they needed to know all this information. And I remember a very wise boss that I had once pulled me up and I learned an enormous amount from her about what not to put in briefs, that less is more, and really focus on who is the audience what is it that they really mm, need to mm. know to take whatever action you're asking them to take and just leave out everything else? Yeah, um, and, and sort of the word audience went out of fashion, you know, and now we talk about stakeholders and, of course, there that is a different kind of word to use. And um, But I, I still like to talk about audiences because it just forces people to, to think about, okay, I do have to perform in some way to some level of quality for this for this group of people. It's not I'm thinking about my employees as an audience. It, the, it, it's upon me to provide them with something that engages them, as opposed to something that they are obliged to read or 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 listen to or understand. You know, so there's yes. something about the the word audience that that puts the responsibility on you to do a better job of performing performing in in the communication stakes. Yeah. And so, Libby, with that, what types of organisations have you worked with and what are some of the challenges that you see that they typically face? So, uh, obviously, I've been working for a long time. So, uh, the long list of organisations from agriculture to mining and resources to, so, of course, all the extractive um, resources because I've worked in Australia, but I've worked in higher education, of course. I've worked in professional services in the engineering world, but also in the communication sphere. I've never really been involved in much consumer-facing stuff. It's always been around facilitating some kind of change. You know, we're not happy with the way our stakeholders are engaging with us. How can we transform that relationship? We need the public permission to do X. Or the challenges that I, would, I have had most experience with, and I think that most organisations are kind of dealing with in some form, is that they're trying to um, make a change uh, make it palatable, make it possible, make it fast enough, build relationships where they haven't had them, improve relationships and, you know, compel some kind of action like getting somebody to or some group or somebody to do something that, you know, is, is the holy grail. So what are some of the biggest risks that you've seen those organisations make, either ones you've worked with or even just organisations that have been reported in the media? So even though things have changed a lot over the years, it's always about making decisions to avoid a short-term loss. It's going to get you the most trouble and that's, you know, if you're making a decision to avoid a short-term loss, you, mostly your action is going to be, I'm going to hide, I'm going to obfuscate, I'm going to confuse, I'm going to cover up, I'm going to make decisions or I'm going to 
make decisions like perhaps even in good faith, but intuitively with no data. And I'm going to make them quickly because I want to, I want to jump into certainty as much as, as fast as possible. I think there's lots of examples where organizations have been, they've done something that hasn't met with approval and probably hasn't been the right thing to do. But instead of containing that, owning it, announcing it, and then being and acknowledging it, making reparations, apologizing, you know, take, taking the short-term hit, they have hidden it, you know, the situation, people get, they get more and more negative feedback. And that, that honestly has been, you know, that is the, the persistent, consistent experience of my professional career. When you point at a crisis, it's not so much what happens, it's how people respond to it. But the crisis averted, you don't see it, you know, and there's that sort of well-meaning people who are just telling the wrong stories at the wrong time with the wrong audience and putting themselves in the middle of events and stories where they do not belong. So are there any other mistakes that you've seen organisations make, Libby? Well, storytelling is, is of course, very um, fashionable and absolutely critical. And, you know, there's lots of great things said about that, lots of ways in which you can learn how to 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 provide more substance and give people more engaged by telling stories. But but once again, going back to that point about audiences, you know, I have also been in that space where um, people are telling the stories that they find engaging but are not engaging or not the right kind of stories to be telling. It's that kind of one has to weigh up again the sort of um, what is the audience needs to hear from us about this? How can I add value to that by telling a story that is is for them and not for me? <laughs> um, you know, yes. that's that's uh, and you're seeing a lot of that, I'm sure, on you know LinkedIn and various other places. Like, think about who you're trying to reach with that. It might be a story that you want to tell, but that's not the story that that is going to engage the right people in the right way in in your initiative. And it's not going to get you what you want. So think about that. And more recently, I think it's the over-reliance on technology. We always think in communications about channels. <laughs> what are your channels? Uh, you need to, when you do your analysis, you think about what channel is going to make, is going to help us reach this person in the way that's going to have impact uh, at the right time. And, and that may or may not be another Teams meeting or a social media post. You know, we do need to get off our asses, off our chairs, and go and see yeah. people, or pick up the phone, do whatever, and reach people in the, using the channels that will work for them and aren't most convenient to us. So it's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think some of this goes to – I did some work with um, – another state government department, and they were very focused on being audience and insights-led. And it's not just about the insights that you get from tech and all the algorithms and the reports on how many hits this got or how many likes or the impressions. Sometimes getting up off your chair as a leader and walking the floor for the people who are there or picking up the phone and having a conversation gives you such valuable insights about how people are interpreting what they're hearing. Because I always remember, isn't it in the ear of the receiver? Not It's not what you intend to send, it's how the person receiving it actually hears it and interprets it that you have to pay attention to. And so often we forget that. Yeah, and I've had some really humbling experiences 
clarity is is always more important than cleverness. You know, <laughs> I love words. I love vocabulary. You know, it's always fun to play with that stuff. And then, you know, you put something together or or, or you know put something complicated together, which is beautiful, but you know, it's just not clear. I had a really interesting experience working on a public health campaign around shaken baby syndrome years ago in the States. And the campaign team, we got very excited about the visuals, the script for a PSA, etc. We'd gone around and done a whole lot of focus group work. We'd gathered a whole lot of research. And, and we were looking at a couple of different versions of this campaign. And, and those of us on the inside of the team really loved this one kind of approach because it was beautiful, it was compelling and it was clever. And then and there was this other, the other version that we didn't love so much, it was a bit basic and it was... Uh. So then we, of course, being the proper researchers that we were, that we went around and we did all the testing. And of course, what came back was enthusiastic embracing of the option that we all didn't love so much. And the reasons that the people who were the audience, who were the users, basically said, yeah, this all makes sense to us. We really like this. We can see ourselves in this. We don't know what the other thing's about. <laughs> basically, they just said, yeah, no, we, yeah, we don't really get it, but we like this. And it was a lesson for all of us. It doesn't matter what we think. We are not the people yeah. who are supposed to be reached by this. So are you, I suppose it comes down to, are you there to develop a message that can be consumed easily by the public or are you developing something that entertains people on the Australian TV show, The Gruen Transfer? Exactly. Exactly. The reality is in advertising, you'll find they're very good sort of approaches to testing, audience testing, and still, you know, every now and then fail. But in everyday organisational comms, there's just so much so many opportunities we don't take to test what we're about to send out to people or we sort of test it in this half-hearted fashion with a couple of couple of people who are like sitting around near us or in the, or in the same executive decision-making group mm. who are honestly not the best people to test that on. And it's not even just the words, is it, Libby? Because I know sometimes when you're doing a change presentation or something and someone will pull together images to put in with the words and that they don't realise how some of those images can be interpreted by different audiences who are looking at them through a different lens. Yes, exactly. If you're a decision maker and you're a senior person, then there's going to be a lot of people who probably want to tell you what you want to hear. And that's short-term gain, long-term risk. You're called comms professionals for a reason, aren't you, Libby? Because that is the professional expertise that you have. And I know myself, I'm not a comms person, but I worked very closely with the comms team on a whole range of change initiatives. And there are times when you just need to take their advice about what is going to be most impactful or what is most appropriate here and your role as the policy or the change person is to make sure that the comms people have got all of the information and the context that they need to be able to give you good advice and that you're making sure the facts are right. Yeah. I'm interested, Suzanne, when have you got the best results out of your comms team? When we've had really open and robust conversations. Yeah. So I know where we did a whole piece around community engagement around a particular issue and they knew everything that 
needed to be known about community engagement. They were highly skilled, but they probably didn't understand some of the sensitivities for the stakeholder groups. And so when we were able to be really, really open about that, and I know it's a bit of a trite word these days, but to co-design what the whole approach would be, and we actually went through it and let it play out in like not in real time. I mean, we would sort of say, well, what if we did this? How would this go? And just ran the scenarios and thought about, well, who would respond well to that? Who wouldn't? What are the sensitivities that we need to think about? And by doing it together, I think we ended up with a far better experience. I learned an enormous amount from them, but I think they also learned a lot about the context from us. Exactly. You know, experts in subject matters like communications or anything else, they don't know everything about the context and and the, the context specialists are the ones who have to share that. But I would say the same thing, you know, that that experience of going into co-design collaborative space. I've listened to you talk to Max about co-design. It's having courageous conversations, like not being afraid to say, yeah, but what about this? But what do you mean by that? And to to sort of have those challenging each other's and not not just sort of trying to, to say, take the order. And I guess that works when you've got somebody who is open to have those conversations. But I've certainly worked with clients and who are not open to have those conversations. They want what they mm-hmm. want and they're not listening or willing to have or willing to be challenged in order to get to a better place. It's interesting sometimes working with different ministers' mm, offices because yeah. there'll be people in a minister's office who's got very strong views. Something stuck in their head mm. about how they want something to be and so sometimes it is a lot of work to get them to actually take the advice of the communications people. You know, then there are other communications people I've I've worked with who are absolutely amazing at actually bringing people along that journey and helping them to understand what they're advising yeah. is really important and why it matters and makes people then comfortable with the decision they end up making. You know, as you're as you're talking, I'm thinking about you know this your this whole idea of thriving in ambiguity, and certainly in my experience, the most productive working relationships I've ever had have been with senior people, CEOs, chairs have have been with people who are open to those sort of challenging conversations and who have some humility, and they listen, they take all points of view on board, and have a robust discussion, and they aren't afraid of that if you can do that then I think you can thrive through ambiguity because you can you can change the play progressively yeah and I know it's really hard sometimes because I know I can be guilty of this myself that people often find it hard to articulate exactly what they do want but they're very quick to tell you what they don't want and what they don't like but sometimes at least understanding what are those parameters so it can't be this it can't be this it can't be this at least it enables you to then hone in on a narrower range and then apply your creativity to that space Yes, rather than just shooting off in every direction. We talk about non-negotiable sometimes, you know, what, what is it we can play with and what is it we can't, what, what can we touch and what can't we. But I am leery of that too because I, I, I think it's, once again, if, if there's a way that you can at least have a conversation about what isn't 
Why is that out? Just talk me through that again. And if your executives can hold it together and not feel threatened or challenged by someone asking them questions about this kind of this thing that they hold to be a truth, then that can be useful. You can find other pathways uh, and people can have moments, aha moments. In terms of an easy specific was uh, we're rolling out a uh, financial systems change a big organization, basically, to put it bluntly, it had to go well or they wouldn't be able to get the invoices out, wouldn't get their money in. <laughs> but, you know, how you – large organizations, there's lots of initiatives, you know, and everything was being upgraded. Everything is important. And one of the things became clear as I was getting the brief for all of this that there were going to be two or three big initiatives all landing on the employees all at the same time, particularly the middle – poor middle managers. And so – I was going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Well, uh, and we were t- I was talking to the various teams like, oh, yeah, well, ours is going to roll out in this two-week period and ours. So, I ended up having my kind of update with the this chief executive officer and I said, you know what? <laughs> um, I think what like the, the biggest – biggest positive change that we could make right now in order to ensure the success of this rollout of the financial system would be just to move these other projects back another month or two because they are not business critical in the way this one is. And so that was that was easy to have that conversation. And up until that point, it wasn't even on the agenda that, you know, these things weren't going to all happen concurrently. So really think about the bandwidth that people have. People really only have a certain amount of bandwidth to really take in important information. And if it's your information, think about how you're prioritizing that and coordinating it. Yes. So that you're not hitting everyone all all at once. once. I know. Particularly if you work in an environment where there's like a central office and then there's a whole heap of spokes out in the system, one of the common... um, complaints I used to hear was the fact that the people at the centre didn't coordinate no. at all and the poor people out there who were delivering things were just being bombarded with messages and requests and everything was all coming a, at once. They had no idea what was the most important and they're just trying to yeah. um, paddle like a duck, trying to keep up with it all. So really thinking about that prioritization and timing and coordination if you're doing any sort of system level yeah, change. That really needs to be controlled. That is that is actually a huge issue. People get drowned with all of this stuff. But it is absolutely essential. And the problem we have now is that everybody can email everybody about everything in these large and, and this is I think this is probably peculiar to large organizations. It gets out of control. It's very much out of control mm-hmm. in many organizations I've had to work with. And it's a big part of organizational culture and actually making sure that leadership teams have conversations about what's the tone and the approach that we want here. Are there some protocols that we need to have in place? I mean, people who copy in absolutely everybody on everything and you end up with 50 thank yous in my inbox. It used to really frustrate me. Oh, yeah. It's one of those things that you know, I, I think part of the challenge, you know, correct me if, I, if you think I'm wrong, but part of the challenge is that that doesn't seem to be anybody's specific job, you know, reining in, you know, because you've got the executive who runs this section and that section, you know, and they're all delivering what they have to deliver and they don't necessarily have an overall coordination role. 
And then you've got the brand people who look after the brand, but once again, that's not not what yeah. we're talking about. I think it goes to just basic leadership and culture. And I learnt because there were times when I would work ridiculous hours to get work done and I didn't realise at first just the impact that had on other workers and the pressure that that put on them when they got emails that they could see. Well, they'd see they'd come from on a Saturday and a Sunday and they weren't critically urgent and then they're sort of getting stressed before they even get to work on Monday, thinking about what's waiting for them. And then, yes, they would see things Mm -hmm. coming in at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Yes, very unhealthy. And then they see you in the office Mm. at 9 o'clock and they're going, oh, what's going on here? So learning, like sometimes that is the reality of being a senior executive, but delay send features are very helpful. I'm certainly very familiar. A lot of people are being very responsible about that, setting the right kind of tone because people will either go, otherwise get exhausted before they even get to work on a Monday uh, or whenever. Yes. And that's not healthy yeah. and it's not long-term and, and, you know, you won't – you burn people out. And, what, what good is that? And to them, when something does come through, they do know it's important and that they need to pay yeah. attention to it because they will sometimes, particularly at senior levels – there will be things that sometimes in a crisis or something goes wrong or you're trying to avoid a crisis, there are things that do need to be attended to. Yeah. But going back to your early comment about like, what is the action? Like, give me the call to action and tell me tell me what that is up front. Make sure that the subject, you know, that, that the head is. Yes, and it might just be, please call me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's clear. So, Libby, are there any tips that you have for leaders who want to get down to those simple, essential information or messages that need to be shared? I would say ask questions, listen, ask more questions, you know, get into the detail. Um, Get the timeline straight early, you know, what has to happen now, what can wait. And even if you can't tell the whole story straight away, give people Mm -hmm. a timeline of when you can tell them or give them or, you know, when all of the actions will be complete. You know, it's really important in terms of certainty management that you give people an understanding of, you know, what kind of time frame you're you're going to complete something, you know, whether it's an initiative that's positive or, or a fix. I would say also don't ever forget to take that you aren't the intended audience and when we talk about communication, I always go back to sort of journalism 101. It's who, what, when, where, how, and why. So, you know, what's your purpose? What is it you really want to do with this communication? Uh, what has to happen now? What happens later? How speaks to, you know, your tone? You can apologize or you can sympathize, but if you don't sound like you're apologizing or sympathizing in terms of the word choices and in terms of how you're actually delivering that, then that's counterproductive, you'll do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. So reach people when it's good for them, not when it's good for you. So, you know, the classic is don't send them stuff at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon. That's a terrible time to be trying to get something important to people. Uh, Particularly not if you're delivering news that might distress people, you need to make sure they can get access to EAS. Yeah, all weekend. That's cruel. That's absolutely atrocious. Um, So there's simple things about timing and, you know, channels. uh, Once again, take the 
approach to those people you're trying to reach? What is what channels will work for them best? Uh, you know. Yes. Think about what it is that you're um, what you're trying to do. And I would just also just as a communications person and uh, a curmudgeon, don't use euphemistic language. Don't use made-up words. Don't use all that jargon. It's obfuscating, like it's lazy. It can be dishonest. It can be easily mislead people. Uh, and mostly it's just it's just terrible. I was reading something. Can I – do I have a, little, a moment to tell you this? Yeah? Yes. I was yeah. reading something that was describing a change management program, and this is this is – I'm just going to read you the, the words here. One of our control functions was in the middle of a multi-year transformation program where a specific project was looking at eliminating duplicate roles, streamlining processes, and clarifying central contact points for the businesses. This meant that many of the existing roles would either fall away or be reshaped to fit the t new target operating model. <laughs> so... Bottom line is people are going to lose their jobs, but we're talking euphemistically about yeah. their roles falling away as if, you know, it's yeah. a well-cooked lamb shank. You know, this is not – these sort of euphemisms are, are everywhere and they're just hard to – people don't necessarily know what you mean and what you're talking about. You know, you have to so – what would be a kind way of a clear and kind way of saying? Oh, saying well, that. when you're talking, well, talking people talk, losing their jobs, people being made redundant. I think the kindest way is to, and the most respectful thing to do, is to talk in those terms. These roles yeah. are being made redundant. We will look, you know, people have an opportunity to apply for blah blah whatever whatever it is, but. Yes. This kind of mealy-mouthed kind of – it's not – I don't think it's respectful to anybody. It's like I, I don't want to say these words, so I'm not going to. But that's not an honest way to talk to people. And and also mm. it's – um. let's face it, there's always this tendency to overestimate people's literacy levels, like people's reading ages. And, you know, we're all in this professional managerial class, so we're, you know, we're okay. But – if we're not talking to each other, we're talking to people in a more in a broader group. It's very easy to overestimate how you know people's capabilities to uh, in terms of reading yes. and comprehension, and also mm. their level of distraction. All of the all of the noise that's going on in their in their own minds and around them physically. Uh, if you've ever worked, of course, and you would have. Well, if you worked in the health sector, people they work people who are busy. They work in lots of different. They've got lots going on around them. Well, they don't have a nice little office to go read their, you know, communications with. No. Yeah. Well, years and years ago, when I first started and I worked in the hospital, there were whole work teams where the only person who spoke English in the work team was the supervisor. Yeah, right. Mm. That the supervisor. So there were. Like depending on the waves of immigration that came over post-war or right. around Vietnam or there were just whole waves of immigration where there were teams and the only person who had any reasonable grasp of the English language was the supervisor. Everyone else was dependent on the supervisor interpreting that messaging. Right. Right. Yeah, so it's very complicated to – and. 
and be you know being mindful of that and there's people who can help you know um, deal with varying levels of yeah. literacy and that's when you can also use like visuals can tell a story in a more simple yes. way well, first nations peoples i know um some of the cards card packs and different things that have been developed to help families who are um, struggling and need some support and need to step up around other members of their family to help them actually using um, visual card packs that recognize that English is not their first language um, and help to make it easier for people to understand the concepts that are being talked about with them rather than being use big, long, complicated um, terms and phrases that a social worker might find very familiar but for a family just is very, very foreign. Yes, exactly. I was involved in it. I wasn't personally on on site but um, a couple of members of my team were involved in a project with um, First Nations people and was in, um, around designing, redesigning barge landings. And in order to uh, allow the community to communicate, it meant going to their community, sitting down in the location where the the barge was located, talking about and allowing the community to talk about what their needs were, you know, and, and, and some of that was like the discussion that was translated. Some of it was the drawing you know, stuff in the whatever drawing implements were around on the ground or on bits of paper, and you know the purpose of that communication was was for them to um, to get what they needed, not for them to be delivered something that was totally inappropriate for their for for, for their circumstances. So you know, with that sort of purpose in mind, it's easy to then allow things to happen and unfold in a in a way that isn't isn't kind of formulaic and requires you know oh this this is how we do things therefore this is how everybody should do things yeah and we i know we we used to always talk about you know shiny booklet syndrome or oh, you know such a lovely shiny brochure, a brochure these days it's an ebook oh my god <laughs> instead just think about what's going to be most useful for the audience mm. in these circumstances i'm curious in your own words what does thriving and complexity mean to you so I was thinking about this question. I think for me, I'm going to use an old word, you know, blinkers, the old, the blinkers that they, that you, you actually, I think they still have them on horses and races, certain kinds of horse racing or something. Not that I watch that stuff, but it's um, the blinkers. It reduces your peripheral vision, right? There's a lot of people who walk around organizations with their blinkers on, you know, they, they reduce the peripheral, they, they, they don't want to see what around corners because they really just need to get their job done. But I think that thriving in complexity is about being able to being willing and able to sort of take the blinkers off and use your peripheral vision to live your life in that organization with an understanding of what's really going on and being open to understanding that and being comfortable with the challenges and contradictions that that brings. So... Mm-hmm. I guess that, um, as we touched on earlier, the executives that I have enjoyed working with most and who I think we achieved the best outcomes and have achieved and would continue to achieve, uh, have been those who are able to say, you know what, there are different perspectives, we need to acknowledge that, let's collaborate, we're going to listen, we're going to 
ask each other challenging questions and we're going to make decisions. Having done that kind of analysis, we're not going to all kind of go off in our own directions based on our own intuition and, and gut. I think if I was going to give advice yeah. to anybody about about that, it would be more in line with, with values. If you're very good at what you do, just make sure that what you're doing is is what you want to be remembered for ultimately. Mm. Yes. Okay, that's a nice line. So make sure that whatever you do, it's in alignment with what you want to be remembered yeah. for. And so if you were looking back and giving advice to your 25-year-old self, what would it be? Uh, I would say go and get your PhD now. Don't wait. Don't wait. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have a burning curiosity, you know, you sort of just go and do it because don't wait till you're in your 30s. But, you know, don't make yourself smaller. Don't play down your intellect um, or talent to make yourself more palatable to people. Um, I, yeah. I would say that to myself at 25. You know, you don't have to – you can be respectful uh, you can be yourself. You don't have to be perfect all the time. When you were talking about um, not playing small, it probably wasn't my mid-20s. It probably was my mid-30s when I read a book called um, Break Your Own mm. Rules. So I can put the link to it in the show notes. But for me, that was a really um, useful read because there were so many of the rules in there that women impose on themselves, I could see that I was imposing on myself. And that is a trap that a lot of women can fall into. And so that was a book that for me was quite pivotal in making me really reflect and think about some of the ways that I was showing up and how I was restricting Restrict, myself. Yeah. So. It, it's a, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't read the book, but I think for me that the, I've certainly life-changing experience for me was um, was going on the journey of doing my PhD, but then uh, going to the US and working around working at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I was just surrounded by the most amazing people who who were so positive and so complimentary. Like it was amazing to be in an environment, you know. And I love Australia, but we can be very tedious about you know keeping each other on the same level and, you know, sometimes we can be a little bit less than generous with our feedback. I think we're better at that culturally now than we were 20 or 30 years ago. But all of a sudden mm. I was in this environment, people were like so supportive and generous with their praise and made me more grow and be more generous with my praise and sort of really changed. And I, I felt that was a, a, a an eye-opening experience for me and it really felt like life started for me professionally then in terms of wrecking, you know, people had given me positive feedback over the years, but this was a different, it was like culturally, it was all about developing early career researchers and then sharing that kind of knowledge. And that was, that was fantastic. We should do more of that. So I suppose one thing to leave people with is, although we talk a lot about what comms don't land well, we should also focus on giving people positive feedback about what is done well and what's well received. Absolutely. Like and that as a as a manager, like as a team, as a leader in, in an organization, I have certainly tried very hard to cultivate, you know, what people can do, what they're good at, what they love. And 
I also think building people's confidence, it's amazing once they have a bit of confidence, what more they can do. You know, that's, uh, you can, you can undermine people's confidence with a few harsh words and, and that will, that is, that will, you know, sit with them for the rest of their lives. Whereas it's much better to leave that legacy and, and also, then you get the benefit of having people come back to you, go, "Oh my God, you know that conversation I had to you with at this point uh, with you at that point, you know, really changed my life. I turned a corner, you know, that sort of stuff." And that has been the best thing about being a leader is kind of seeing people grow and develop and find their own way and and get confidence. Hmm. But Libby, I'm really conscious. If people um, would like to connect with you online, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Dr. Libby Mitchell, just message me. Libby, thank you so much for sharing so many of your insights with us today. I hope that people listening really picked up some helpful hints about how they can improve the quality of their communications in quite complex and ambiguous situations. And remember to really be curious, ask questions, share context, focus on the who, why, what, where, how, when. (laughs) Who, what, when, where, why and how. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And just keep it short and simple and nice, simple, plain English and say it as you want people to understand it and, and avoid the euphemisms. So, Libby, thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.